You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. So if you will stand with me for just a moment, as we stand on the word of God, I want to read this passage to you. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. God, we pray that you will take control of this moment that we have together and let your word speak to us and speak clearly. Lord, we know that the enemy loves to steal and to kill and to destroy. But God, today we ask that you will protect us from the enemy and give us wisdom to see where he is at work that we may stand firm against him and know that even when we face demonic opposition, we can still be true to you and we can watch you reach people and save souls. That's what we yearn for, Jesus, is to see souls saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What I want to show you here is how the enemy works in his subtle ways. This afternoon, you could go out in your backyard and look up in the sky, and you'll probably see jet, trail, uh, jet trails, those vapor trails in the sky. And you can't see the plane, but you know a plane was there. Well, that's kind of what we see in our text today. We don't necessarily have the devil in the text. His name does not appear. There isn't anything hideous or dark that occurs. We do not have a demonic possession here or anything that's fabulous and fantastic like that. But what we see are the subtle hints of spiritual warfare. What we see are the fingerprints of the evil one as he is at work in a successful church. And throughout the Bible, we see examples of this. Let me give you one from the Old Testament. Many of you are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? Pretty pretty well-known story. Well, you take a look at that story and you think about it. Here's David, a young man, uh, you know, just probably a teenager, and he's facing this mighty warrior. And the story is sort of anticlimactic in the sense that it's not a drawn-out battle, but David wipes him out with one stone and one sword thrust in just a few seconds. It's over before it starts. And you say, okay, David's facing this front-on assault from a demonic force, a, a giant like Goliath, and he's down in a second. But later in his life, all it takes is lust as he sees Bathsheba on the rooftop and he gives in to his sin. You see, that's a reminder that many times the sins and the struggles that we have, they're not the ones that are the most obvious. They are the things that are happening in our hearts. 
I believe that God has called Ridgecrest to be a soul-winning church, to reach our community and to reach the nations in the name of Jesus. But to win souls, we must first win the battle for our hearts. And when I say that, I'm talking about not just your individual journey with, uh, with God and fighting off those sins that are in your hearts. We need to be thinking about how we need to fight against the sins that come and attack the church in general. But I do believe the battle for our hearts is the battle we keep losing. We keep losing this most fundamental battle. So again, it's kind of like if we saw a Goliath coming, we could all stand up and defeat that enemy together. But what will bring us down are the little things like the murmuring we read about in the text. More on that in a moment. We've been going through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is a beautiful book, but it is a long book. And so to try to go through it, I've divided it up into subsections. In our first section, we were trying to get a a grasp of what it means to be uh, a devoted disciple of Jesus. And especially in chapter 2, the last 20 verses of chapter 2, we saw those disciples praying together, filled with the Spirit, teaching and breaking bread house to house. We saw the devotion of true disciples And then in the next section, beginning there in chapter 3, we begin to notice the dynamic power of God displayed. And that's where we started to get into the healing miracles and how Peter and John and the other apostles are endowed with similar powers that we saw in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. So we've been talking about that until this last time we were there here in the book of Acts. But now, what we begin to realize is, is that the devil sees what's happening, and begins to assault the church. So starting here in chapter 6, we are going to begin to see uh, a a movement of darkness against the church. And that's what I mean by demonic opposition. Demonic opposition. You see the devil starting to stir. Now in this text, again, we do not have the devil named. There's no demons named. Legion doesn't show up in this text. But there is something going on. There's something that just isn't right. There's a feeling here in Acts chapter 6 that, that the powers of evil don't like what's going on. And in spite of that, we know that God was able to work through the church and through that demonic opposition and still dramatically save thousands. Keep in mind, that's what we're experiencing here in Acts together. As we're going through the book of Acts, we're not just seeing a church being moderately successful, but thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. And can't you imagine with me that the devil didn't like it? The devil wouldn't mind if the church was just in a rut or not moving forward or stagnated in some sense. But when the church gets moving forward, there's going to be demonic opposition. And that demonic opposition is really all there in that one word in the text, complaint. The word complaint. We see there was a complaint that was brought before the apostles. And we see that, that word neglected in verse 1, kind of points us in the direction. And what we see here is, is that, that this complaint that seems so minor, it could bring the whole thing down. You know, if you are attacking a castle, you would be wise not to run your troops up against the wall, but you would be wise to try to undermine the wall and have it collapse. That's what the devil is doing here. He is trying to undermine the work of the early church. And we need to open our eyes because the devil is always trying to do the same thing to us. He is cruel. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we need to watch out for that. And to do that, we have to begin with the devil being in the details. So let's talk about that for just a moment because the devil doesn't take days off. 
You and I need vacation days. You and I need days to rest. But I want to tell you, the devil doesn't need a vacation day. In fact, he is on duty when the church is doing its work. And look at Acts 6.1. We see that the church is on duty. They are doing their work. And we are told, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Right there in verse 1, we are told why there would be demonic opposition. It's because the church was numerically increasing. People were coming to know Jesus, and it was a powerful thing. By the thousands, 3,000, 5,000, who knows how many people are in the church at this point. And you would think that everything's great, but I want to tell you, even when the church is growing like that, if we're not careful, there can be problems brewing. And in the text, we know that problems had been brewing. One example would be Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that? There we see that some in the church did not have their hearts right. So already we're getting a picture that the church being filled with people is also filled with problems. So that is part of the picture of Acts. Acts is not telling us that everything was great. It's telling us that these were people just like us. And here in the text we are told that the complaint was between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And this seems like such a minor point. I mean, what in the world are they talking about? It has something to do with the daily distribution. Well, let me just very quickly explain what's going on here because it's important. And you'll see how the devil would use something like this to get the church fighting and at odds with one another. In those days, there was no welfare system and there was no way to support those who were indigent, those who were poor, those who did not have resources. And so in those days, there were different individuals. Sometimes wealthy individuals would come and try to help people. But for the most part, if you were poor and couldn't work, you would die of starvation. That's just the way it was if you were poor. So the church in Jerusalem comes in, and they begin to help the most vulnerable. Now let me say this. Here at Ridgecrest, one of the things that drives us, one of our passions is we treasure the vulnerable. We look for people who are hurting because we see Jesus and his disciples helping those who are hurting. And so the disciples do that. They begin to help these widows. Some of them are Hellenists and some are Hebrews. Hellenist means Gentile or Greek. So they would be the ones, the widows of, of men who probably were Roman or Greek and, and were transplants into the city of Jerusalem. Now this is why this is important. If you are a stranger in a strange land and you do not have any family support, especially a widow in this instance, when the husband died, that means there were no cousins or aunts or uncles or family structure for them to fall back on. Notice in the text that it's mentioning the daily distribution. This is not some fellowship meal that's being messed up. This is daily bread. This is keeping people alive. And the Hellenists felt like that they were being neglected uh, because of the Hebrew widows. Now, the Hebrew widows would have been the widows that were Jewish, and their husbands were probably Jewish, and they probably had a little bit more family support, and there were probably a few more times where those individuals would get to the front of the line. And the Greek folks were saying, that's not fair, and that's where the complaint came from. Are you following me? So what you see here is this is not about, uh, you know, the Thursday night fellowship meal where everybody comes and gorges themselves with three pieces of cherry pie. Don't get that picture in your mind. The reason why we see this as an administrative text is because we don't understand starvation. We don't understand that the church was on the front lines of keeping people alive. Now, our situation in the United States isn't quite like that. But the ministries we're doing here and around the world are more and more having elements like that where there are people in extreme poverty and extreme trouble and the church needs to put them as a priority because that's what Jesus would do. But the more we put those people in priority, when we start caring for the orphan and the widow, let me tell you, when we start caring for those who are vulnerable, the devil comes after us. And we see this happening in the text. There's this complaint, this murmur. 
That is a common word that we see in the scriptures, not just here in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And we see that these murmurings, this feeling of being neglected is from the devil. It is demonic. I believe that this concern uh, builds up because the devil wants to put the church at odds. The church at this instance is multinational, multi-ethnic. It is diverse, which is a good thing. And I believe that the devil wanted to use that very diversity against the church. Friends, this is a practical issue, not a theological issue. In my experience, most of the time, a Baptist church like ours, we can work through our theological issues together. But what tends to break churches apart are the practical things, the differences of opinion. We, we, we come, and instead of working together, we allow ourselves to get in the way, in a sense. We allow the enemy to whisper into our ears, and those complaints and those murmurings turn into something that's very negative. The Lord wants to rob you of your joy, your peace, and, and the grace that he has to give you. And it can all begin with a complaint. Don't believe it? Read Exodus 16, read Numbers 11, read Numbers 17, read Psalm 106. I gave you all those passages real quick, but I want you to know the Old Testament is filled with stories of complaining Baptists. No, I'm kidding. Complaining people, people who are complaining about what's going on. Now, we're going to talk about this in a moment. Not all complaints are bad. Sometimes those complaints can lead to a, a very constructive rebuilding of things. But here we want to just be aware that the devil is in the details. If we aren't careful, those complaints, when our hearts, listen to this, when our hearts are quick to criticize and complain and not quick to pray and, and seek out understanding, that's when the trouble starts. The enemy can use that in a powerful way. I kind of have this picture in my mind of a, a murmur being something like a, a tiny ripple in peaceful waters. Imagine a still pond and you drop that little pebble in it and those ripples are smooth and they seem so innocent. But in the ocean, you can have a tiny ripple of a wave that can turn into a tsunami of great destruction. I think that that's what this passage is warning us about. If we're not paying attention to the practical needs of the church, if we're not caring for one another well, what seems to be a minor thing can turn into a major thing. So let's talk for a moment about the distractions that seem deserving. The devil is always trying to distract disciples of Jesus Christ. Now I want to show you something here in the text. In verse one, it says, now in these days when the disciples... We're increasing in number. This is the first time in the text where average Christians are called disciples. Up until this point, the disciples has been a very technical term to represent the apostles that Jesus had trained. But I believe that by chapter 6, you have these Christians who have been following Jesus long enough that, that now they're being called disciples. Because what is a disciple? A disciple is one who talks like, walks like, teaches like, and ministers like Jesus. I think by chapter 6, the church is starting to look like a Jesus movement. They look like they're filled with the presence of Jesus. People sense that when they talk and when they walk and when they minister, they're hearing things very similar to Jesus. Now, these disciples of Jesus, these disciples are making a big difference. And I want you to know this, as we make disciples, the devil makes trouble. When we are serious about disciple making, 
the devil will make trouble because he doesn't want Christians to grow. If the devil lost you in the sense that you are a Christ follower, he's not going to leave you alone. He is going to distract you in every way so that you don't go deeper in your faith. He lost your soul, but he wants you now to lose your place, your ministry, your calling, your work in the kingdom. Listen, that seems like something that is happening all over the time. This is not something that is happening just in places in the church. I fear it's happening everywhere. So many people, they come to know Jesus, but they never seem to find their way. You see, a church that is reaching people and making disciples is a danger to the devil. We need to realize that if we're doing our job well, we will become dangerous to the devil. Now, as the church is growing, the church has some growing pains. We've already talked about uh, there was some competition between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And the complaints, I believe here, are not the kind of complaints about, you know, the color of the carpet or whatever. These are legitimate complaints about ministry. And notice what happens here. The apostles don't do this. Here's what they don't do. The apostles don't say, okay, guys, we got to work harder. We've got to go from eight-hour days to 12-hour days. We have to spend more time um, caring for these widows and less time praying and doing work. They do not do that. That is not what they do. Instead, look at the text and notice they invite the whole congregation into the solution. And the 12, verse 2, summon the full number of the disciples So instead of working harder, the disciples say, let's work smarter. Let's be wise. Let's look for people who can help us meet this physical need among the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The whole church is invited to be aware of the situation, but also part of the solution. Let me say this. The biggest challenges we face in the church require church-wide commitment, participation, and sacrifice. This church is not going to be great only because it has good leadership or good elders or good deacons. It can only be great. It can only be great if every person is doing their part. So here we see the beginning of the deacon ministry. That's what this passage is really known for. It is known for the call of the first deacons. And a deacon is just a servant. Notice it's right there in verse 2. It speaks of serving tables. Now, I think that's quite literally what was happening here, serving tables in the sense of helping widows get their meal and get their food. But the idea here is the church needs individuals who are fully committed to serving the needs of the people. And the needs of the people in this context would be church members. So I want you to get this straight. One of the things that we need to get right in our hearts, if we're going to reach our community for Jesus, we have to learn to love one another well. We must love one another. They will know us by our love. And we care for one another well. When we care for one another well, that gives an open door for us to care for more people. And when we have more people being cared for, I think we will have the opportunity to see the church expand and even explode in numerical growth. But everyone in the church must be part of this. You see, we need more servants. Churches, sadly, are perpetually servant-starved. Here at our church, we've, we've thought through the Next Generation team has come up with a, a very clever way of illustrating it by saying how many people we need to serve in that ministry. What's the number this year? 171. So out there, there are still some uh, openings, and it shows that we've had that, that board up there for several weeks, and it still has some openings. It just shows how hard it is to find servants. 
Now, this passage is dealing with deacons in particular, but I'm here to tell you, it's, it takes all of us looking for those places to wait tables and to serve. And I believe one of the greatest joys in the world, leading like I do, preaching and all these things, I enjoy preaching, but I really love helping people. There's a whole lot more joy in just serving people. So listen, being a servant of the church is one of the most beautiful things that you can do. It is a glorious thing to be there for another person in the name of Christ. But when a church is servant-starved, it will struggle in its preaching ministry, its prayer ministry, and its soul-winning ministry. Isn't this interesting? I believe that the church was able to grow and expand so quickly because they had deacons. They had their church being served. So often when we think about reaching our community, we're not thinking about reaching the widows and the hurting and vulnerable in our midst. How are those two things connected? Well, I think they think they are directly connected. When the church is serving well within, then that gives its leaders, those who have gifts of preaching and evangelism and missions, more time to preach, more time to teach, and more time to go. If you take your, your pastors, guys like me with the gifts of preaching and teaching, and you just say, okay, we need you to do all things. I can tell you, my first few churches, I loved them. They were small country churches, and basically I would show up, and here's what they would tell me. Well, what's my job description? And they'd basically say, anything and everything. It's all on you. Now, they didn't say it that way, but I learned pretty quick that's the way it was. Now, I know better than that. And we had servants in those churches and many great deacons and leaders and Sunday school teachers. It took all of us doing our work. But I just want to say to you, we must, if we are serious about being a reaching church, we must be a serving church. We must serve one another, and we must make sure that the needs are being met. When those needs are being met, verse 4, then people who are called to pray and to preach can do and minister in the word, we are told. But we need people who are of good uh, reputations, uh, full of the spirit and wisdom. We see that in verses 3 and 5. These are not lesser leaders. I'll also show you this. There in Acts 6, all the names that I read to you are not Jewish names. Those are all Greek names. So the solution was to, to raise up deacons, all of whom were probably Gentile. So the solution really fit the problem. You see how the Spirit is working here. There needed to be more emphasis in, in an area, in a particular area. And if you're going to meet the needs of Hellenist widows, you need people who speak Greek. You need people who speak Latin. You don't necessarily need people who are fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic. So notice in the text that the church comes together and the ones that the Spirit raises up have the gifts of a deacon, which we'll read about later in the pastorals and what that looks like, very similar to the same gifts of the preacher and the, and the, the teacher, what I do. Uh, but nonetheless, we see that in this instance, they had the special gifts of even language. And that, that's important because these individuals needed not just bread, but I think they needed encouragement. And so Peter and the other apostles, they don't want to give up preaching and praying. They want to be in the right place. It was Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, who uh, exhorted leaders uh, to make sure that you get your leaders in your organization in the right seat on the bus. And I think that in this particular passage, that's what we see. That's the administrative element here. Everybody's saying, okay, this is who I am. These are my gifts. This is what I'm called to do as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jeremy, I'm not called to do what you do, but I am really good at this. Help me see it. And that's what the deacons do. The deacons help administer those kinds of needs and grabbing those individuals in the church and putting them in the right place. 
That's what we see. And notice that these are picked out from among the church. Now, let me just mention this very quickly and explain our process. We do that. Every year, by, um, I think, the last Sunday in June, we ask for deacon candidates to be offered. So last week was the deadline. And we did get a, a good number of deacon candidates. But here's the deal. The deacon candidates that we get this calendar year will not be voted on until the next calendar year. And here's why. We want those deacons to be picked out from among us, but we believe that the deacon ministry is so important that we need to make sure that these are men of good repute and filled with the Holy Spirit. We spend a year mentoring them to make sure that this is where their hearts are and that they are uh, by the, the best judgment of our deacons and our elders and your pastors that all of us see that the call of God is on that individual. You see, we want them to be brought out from among the congregation, but we want them to be discipled. That's our process here, and I think it's a good one. And here again, we see that the needs are met, that God gives the right people with the right gifts so that the job can be done. Now, really, this seems to be pretty practical. The church has a complaint. Um, they take that complaint to the apostles, the apostles uh, feel led of the Lord to bring deacons, and now deacons are serving in the church and taking care of the, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And verse, uh, here we see in verse 5 and following, we see that everything is going well, that the people are excited about it, that they, they believe that this is the right move. And what they said pleased the whole gathering we see here. And that's great. I can tell you as a pastor, when you get everybody on the same page, it's a great feeling. It's a rare thing, but it's a great thing. It's hard to get everybody on the same page, but here in the text, we are told that when this decision, verse 3, we're going to pick out from among you seven men of good repute, and we're going to devote ourselves to ministry and the word, verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. That isn't because the apostles were the best leaders in the world. I think it's because the Holy Spirit was working in them and in the church. When the Holy Spirit is working, he works through the leaders, but he also works among the congregation, and everybody comes together and begins to do the work in a way that is beautiful, and the dramatic results that, that come or follow are to be noticed here. When we get our hearts right, when we do things proper, proper devotion leads to dramatic results. These are men full of faith in the Holy Spirit, of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And what we begin to see is a serving church with men like this is a satisfied church. The church is satisfied with what is going, what's going on. The souls of people are being touched, the souls of all people. Now, I want us to realize here the evangelistic implications of this passage. I think this is what we miss too often. It is true that a practical need is met within the church. This looks like a text that is very inward focused. And what I mean by that is, it looks like it's a text that says, okay, this is what the church needs to be strong and functioning well in the body. I've already mentioned, like we need to make sure that we are caring well for you, that we are all caring well for one another. There's no doubt there is an inside component to this text. But verse seven shows us that this inside health is not meant for us to just enjoy for ourselves. This health within leads to more going without. 
And what I mean is moving out, moving out into the community, seeing more people come to know Jesus. Verse 7 says it all. And the word of God continued to increase. Not just that. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You see, when we are doing things right and well and loving one another well, that's when God starts blessing us. I think many churches don't see a harvest of souls because they've got work to do on the inside. When we get work done on the inside, God will start showing us where to go on the outside. That's what this is about. It is not just about church health, but we have to have a healthy church to have a healthy gospel witness. To, to have 8,400 gospel conversations, which translates into each and every one of you having seven healthy gospel conversations between October and October, for that to happen, we need to be together in the gospel. We need to be on the same page. We need to be caring for one another. And if we do that, I think God will bless. Here's something that I've seen over the last 30 years. It's the strangest thing. If I'm faithful over here, doing what God's called me to do, I'm always surprised at what God begins to do over here. Like serving the church and ministering well, what does that have to do with evangelism? Acts 6 says it has everything to do with it. I don't know how this is connected with this, but when the church is faithful, when our devotion is proper, when we're doing things God's way, what happens is, is that God allows us to reach more lost souls. And I'll go you one more. It's not just reaching lost souls, it's reaching the hardest hearted souls. Did you notice who was mentioned specifically? The very demographic that's mentioned in terms of outreach? The priest. Now, I want you to realize that's a big deal. Remember, these priests would have been trained all of their lives to follow the way and the laws of Moses. They would have seen, uh, been taught at least for the last several years that the Jesus movement was exactly opposite of who they were supposed to be. But I'm telling you, because the church had deacons serving the church, caring for the people, God gave favor to the apostles and to all the disciples of Jesus Christ within that early church to reach the hardest of the hard people. I want you in your mind to imagine in your heart and in your mind some of the hardest people you know, whether it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, a professor that you've had or do have. Let me just say this. Get in your mind the most difficult case that you can think of, the person you're most afraid of sharing the gospel with. And let me tell you, if we have a healthy church that's filled with the spirit of Jesus, we won't just reach those who are right now seeking and searching. We'll have the power to reach out to those who right now are enemies of the church. The power of the Holy Spirit can turn this thing upside down. And that's what we're praying. We're praying for God to do that care for people, and then watch God do dramatic things. I want to say to you this morning, please keep serving Jesus no matter what. The enemy has, I'm sure, taken his pot shots at you. If I gave you a minute to tell me all the things that are going on in your life, you would have plenty of reasons to be discouraged, plenty of reasons to have lost your way and not be in the center of God's will. But I'm asking you to keep on serving Jesus no matter what. 
Do you realize you have something valuable? Your faith is something intrinsically valuable, beyond value in any way that we can measure in this world. You have something precious. And the enemy either wants to steal it or for some of you, he's already been there. He's already taken away your passion, your gifts, your drive. Over the years in talking with people, I've noticed that there are so many in the church that have been saved, but they've lost their way. So many people who do believe that Jesus has paid the price for their sins, but because of hurts and pains and distractions and detours, have lost their way and lost their calling. Do you really believe that you can lose that calling and never get it back again? Do you really believe that you have to stay like this the rest of your life? You know, you don't. You don't. You need to realize that the devil has taken something from you. And you need to remember who can give it to you back. Who can give it back to you, and that is Jesus. He wants to restore you. He wants to use you in a mighty way here at Ridgecrest, here in Springfield, here in this world. You see, the devil steals, but Jesus has come to give life and to give it more abundantly. And for someone in this room, it's time to tell the devil to get his hand out of your pocket, out of your billfold, get your credit card back. No more fraud, no more stealing. It's time to take back what Jesus gave you and become the man, the woman of God you're called to be. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.